Thank you for joining us, and welcome to Include NYC's podcast series. I'm Jean Mizutani, joined by one of my all-time heroes, the disability rights pioneer, Peggy Gross. Today's topic is the history of the disability rights movement, and Peggy is the historian of my dreams because she's been an active part of the disability rights movement ever since she took a job at AHRC in 1963, working with people with developmental disabilities. It didn't take her long to notice that according to the regs of the time, students with intellectual disability were forced to exit the school system at just 17 years of age unless they could travel independently to school. Only persons with visual impairment were eligible for orientation and mobility training, as they called it then, and to Peggy, the solution was pretty obvious. She developed a program designed to train individuals with significant cognitive and physical disabilities to travel independently. Her initiatives led to the emergence of the profession of travel training, and Peggy began working with the New York City Department of Education in the 1965-66 school year. Over the next remarkable 53 years, her name became synonymous with travel training. All told, this program has enabled thousands of people with disabilities to enjoy greater opportunity and independence. It's amazing. It's also fair to say that Peggy is a self-appointed historian for people with disabilities. People with disabilities are the largest minority group in the United States, and Peggy is a strong believer in the importance of all persons knowing their history and that their achievement and the struggles they endured to obtain equal access to transportation, education, employment, and independent living options in the community be not only known, but celebrated. She actively promotes the teaching of disability history and the disability rights mo uh, movement to youth with disabilities, as well as parents and educators. And she inspires us with stories of our heroes. We're so glad she's with us today to remind us and inspire. Welcome, Peggy. Thank you, Jean. That was lovely. <laughs> Thank you. Every word was deserved straight from the heart. So, Peggy. Think back, what do you recall were the beginnings of the disability rights movement? When I started, it had already begun in a sense that there was a movement that was just self-directing to have programs open for adults with developmental disabilities where there had been none, where there would be some vocational training for adults with sensory and or physical disabilities where there had not been. So this movement had been slow but steady, but it wasn't active. Mm -hmm. And parents, uh, actually it was in 1949, Annie Greenberg in Brooklyn put a note in the newspaper asking if there were any parents out there of young mentally retarded children who wanted to get together so her kid could have some companionship. That was the beginning of AHRC in New York City. Amazing. So uh, when I went to work there in 1963, they had a grant, and it was one of the first grants given to see if adults with significant developmental disabilities could travel. 
So this was revolutionary because they were not expected to live in the community, to participate in the community, to go out on their own, to do anything but to live and die in institutions like the infamous Willowbrook. Mm. So at that same time, there was, the 50s were, are considered the forgotten decade, but they were really extremely active in the philosophy and the turmoil that went on. And it generated the advocacy and the activism that went into the 60s and 70s. And that started out with the physically disabled at the University of California in Berkeley, where a guy named Ed Roberts had been denied living on campus at University of California, Berkeley, because he needed an iron lung at night. He had had polio. Mm -hmm. Well, he was not one to say no, for a take no for an answer, nor was his mother. So he <laughs> did go, and they eventually had a group of them there, and they became known as the Rolling Quads. At the same time, in New York City, we had uh, a woman named Judy Human, and she had had polio also, and her mother and father these were parents who refused to say that a disability makes you less than a person and you are to be expected to achieve less. They saw their kids as human beings. They saw them as competent. They presumed competence, not inability. Big, big difference. And so Judy Human's parents had raised her. She went to, I think it was Long Island University because they had some accessibility features. Of course, anybody who went to the public schools had problems. Um, and when she graduated, she took the Regents exams, did well. She got a license from New York State to teach. She was denied a teaching job in the New York City Board of Ed in 1970 because she would be a hazard in case of a fire. That wasn't 50 years ago. Not 50 years. And so she sued. She brought a lawsuit and she won. She then got in touch with Ed Roberts and they went out and that's how and where the independent living movement started late in the 60s, early 70s. So there was a lot of action going on in different areas. The people who were blind were seeking information and things like that. At that time, sheltered workshops employed many blind people and physically handicapped people. And there was question on minimum wage, there was question on on south, on vacations, on everything. And earlier on they had had a strike. Sheltered workshops moved into the developmentally disabled field. They started out as preparing people for competitive employment, but they degenerated into a state click pen. So this was some of the work in the disability early disability movement, there was, going back to the parents starting in the 1940s and 50s, there is a wonderful story 
of a couple who were very, very famous in the movies, Dale Evans and Roy Rogers. If anybody ever heard of the horse Trigger, that was <laughs> Roy Rogers' horse. And he was famous, and all the kids loved Roy Rogers, Dale Evans, and Trigger. They had a child named Robin. Robin was born, she had Down syndrome. They loved their child, and they included her in their life, including their publicity photos, much to the dismay of the studios. The studios ranted and raved and said, you cannot include your child because nobody will come to your movies. That was our culture. If you had a child who was that different, there was probably something wrong with you. Definitely something wrong with the child. Roy Rogers and Dale Evans paid no attention. They included Robin, an adorable little girl. You can still <laughs> see her pictures. And she died at the age of two. They were devastated. And Dale Evans wrote a book in the voice of her child called Angel Unaware. She donated all the royalties and proceeds of that to the beginning art, and that's what helped it get its big start. That was the format of what went on in the 1950s. So that quiet generation where everybody looked the same and they make right. fun of them in all the TV commercials, better watch when you open the lid because there was a lot of stuff in that pot that was doing really good, and it laid the foundation. It's amazing. So momentum was already brewing. And then World War II came, veterans came home. What changes did that make? This will sound funny. <laughs> Wars unleash horror. They also unleash tremendous creativity and the opportunity to make progress in other areas. And actually, it was after World War I that there began to be very solidified efforts to do something for all of the veterans who were coming back disabled. And so they started to pass laws and Social Security to take care of and provide veterans benefits. This opened the door for civilians. And so that is what started to happen. And so the veterans, and there's something, an interesting fact that we overlook. There were about 670,000 wounded or disabled veterans after World War II. There were at least that many, if not more, wounded or disabled civilians who worked in the war industry. And so that was a huge number of people impacted by the war. Were they willing to give all that and get nothing back? after they were hurt? Was their family willing to accept it? Raised a lot of questions. University of Illinois opened the first in 1948, made a campus accessible with ramps for veterans who used wheelchairs. So that started the momentum in terms of education and opening of facilities. It, there was the Rehab Act of 1954, Vocational Rehabilitation Amendments, and it increased funding 
and included more people with disabilities, not just disabled vets. One of the interesting things that happened here in New York City in talking about the beginning of the disability rights movement <laughs> was in 1935, the Great Public Works Act, and they were getting people jobs. If you had a physical disability, they marked PH on your application and you were denied the opportunity to work. When the folks found out about it, they did a lot of protesting. It was the first organized protest by people with disabilities that occurred here in New York City in 1935. It was the League for the Physically Handicapped. So that was a big thing. Again, I will revert to the 1950s. It was at that time the first national organizations was the ARC, Association for Retarded Children, it was called at the time and then the National Cerebral Palsy Foundation. They were the first two big organizations for folks with developmental disabilities. So by then, um, the civil rights movement was upon us. What is the intersection between civil rights and disability rights? Part of the intersection is the war. You. Yep. <laughs> you could fight in the war, but you couldn't go to our schools. True for the civil rights folks, true for the, who were African-American, true for the civil rights folks who were disabled. You could do that, but you couldn't go to our schools, you couldn't have our jobs, you can't live in our houses, you can't eat in our restaurants, you can't ride on our buses. Wow, does that sound similar? All of those prohibitions based upon what? Just something that was an attitude that people had. So the civil rights movement started really back in 48 when they forced Truman to do something about integrating the military. And again, that was the same year that the University of Illinois put in ramps to make a university accessible. So there was a connection between the fire in the belly. And as the civil rights movement really did a job. They used the very concept of protest, 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 protest. Do it nonviolently. You can disrupt regular service. You can disrupt a restaurant. You can disrupt a school. You can do those things, but you cannot be violent. They got a lot of attention, and it caused the media attention and many people were forced to see what we were doing. And you had to question, why are we doing this? The 1954 legal suit, Brown versus Board of Ed, was a very profound one. They used the courts, they used everything in the system to be able to turn it and look at itself and eventually they succeeded with the 1964-65 Civil Rights Act and Voting Act. Now where they were very important is they prohibited discrimination based on race, not on, yes, sex, gender, I don't think they included age, I think that had to come later, <laughs> religion. They did not include disability. That was not included. Sex was included, religion was included, 
not disability. So that left a big hole. You were not really violating the law. After that was passed, where the Voting Rights Act, and it has affected New York City, all of these things, was they prohibited denial of the right to vote to eligible citizens. And they clearly took a look at what makes you eligible to vote. What are the restrictions the states are placing on citizens, denying them that? So they took a look at that, and that has worked for persons who are blind and persons who have physical disabilities in having access to the voting poll and polls in New York City. They had to make them accessible. We still fight these issues. They're not over. We have not won. We have marched forward. We're at the 50-yard line, but we <laughs> haven't crossed over to score the touchdown yet. And it's so important to be reminded of that. Um, Peggy, tell us more about the key players in the disability rights movement. Oh, there were so many. They started out as ordinary people. And when you're an ordinary person, you want to do ordinary things. And why should you be denied? What should your reaction be? These folks were outraged. And they used their outrage in a productive way. Within the developmental disability community, those folks had a different set of heroes, in quotes, than did the physical disabilities and the sensories, partially because of the structure of our society and our thinking where it was the families who did the advocacy and the fighting and the going to the courts and the Seeking Willowbrook, one of the folks who does have a developmental disability, who is a personal hero of mine in New York City, is Bernard Carabello. He risked much to open the gates of Willowbrook for Gerardo Rivera to get in to do the expose. The doctor who went along with him, I forget his name, I have it in my files, was fired. These are people who were willing to risk. Bernard was living with these people he was exposing. That's a pretty scary thing to do. Ed Roberts, who insisted on it, and one of my favorite stories about Ed Roberts is he always had an attendant who pushed his chair. He met a girl. <laughs> he fell in love. He didn't want the attendant all the time. He got a motorized chair, learned how to do it, and he and she could ride Terrific. around. I don't know if she is the woman he married, but he eventually had a son. Uh, Ron Mace, who had polio also. He was the guy who became an architect. Think about this. These people went to school in the 60s. Things were not accessible. They had all of these disabilities. He was the one who came up with the concept and the practice of universal design. University of North Carolina. Incredible, incredible man. Judy Human, I mentioned. Of course, there was Dale Evans and Moy Rogers. Pearl Buck. Pearl Buck hid the existence of her daughter, who probably was born with fetal ketonuria, uh, PKU it was called at the time. It was a genetic thing. And she had a significant intellectual disability. 
Eventually, Pearl put her in the Vinyan Training School that was run by a guy named Goddard, who was very big in the eugenics movement, by the way. Oh, boy. And, but it was the Vinyan Training School. I lived in New Jersey. It was considered the place to be. Mm. And she eventually took her out and felt very sorry. The interesting thing about Pearl Bucket, it cost a whole lot of money to have her daughter there. She and her husband, one of the reasons for their divorce was that he objected to all the money she was spending for the care of the girl. She then wrote a book about her, the child who never grew up. So she wrote a book. So you had these famous people come out and declare, I'm not going to be ashamed. I am not. They are people I love. They are my children. They are my identity too. Why do you want me to deny them? And so they rejected the prevailing concept of denying. Anne Greenberg, who wrote the note, a guy who's not well known nationally, Jack Gorelick in New York City, who struggled and fought all of the time in AHRC for many, many years. It was he who mentored me and from whom I learned so much. Um, Frida Zames, another woman with who had had polio, who helped start uh, Disability in Action here in New York City. On the West Coast, you had the Independent Living Movement and the Rolling Quads from Berkeley. On the <laughs> East Coast, you had Disability in Action, DIA. And in, I must not forget Wade Blank. Wade Blank was a phenomenal person. If you ever want to look up somebody who will blow your mind <laughs> and have you wonder how he did it, look him up. He basically was the pusher for getting people out of nursing homes to live in the community. He was fired. He started with others, the group called ADAPT, Americans with Disabilities for Accessible Public Transit, who organized the Capitol crawl, that famous march on Washington, D.C. in 1990. They all got out of their wheelchairs and pulled themselves up the Capitol steps because it wasn't accessible. That captured the attention of the American public and was the final push for the Americans with Disabilities Act. Oh, amazing story, Peggy. It really is. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the Americans with Disabilities Act because eventually laws started being passed. Tell us more. Tell us about the Rehab Act. Oh, the Rehab Act of 1973 was, it is, the precursor to so much, it prohibited discrimination. Prohibited discrimination based on disability. It was the first such thing. And it said you cannot get federal funding if you prohibit from education, if you prohibit from employment a person with a disability. You cannot do that. You cannot get federal funds and act that way. It was passed in 1973, but so what? There were no regs that were approved, so it didn't go into effect. So they had to wait four years for the regulations to get approved. And there was three presidents. There was Nixon, there was Jerry Ford, and then finally Jimmy Carter. 
And the disability community was very, very upset because the regulations were extremely important because for the first time, they talked about reasonable accommodations. Now, reasonable accommodations and equity of opportunity, this was the first time. This was in law. So, and this was before the Education for All Handicapped Children Act, and it was before Americans with Disabilities Act. So it was really, really an important law in 1973, but again, waiting for the regulations. Disability community got very angry, and all across the country, they organized protests and sit-ins. Now, they were successful in other places in getting the attention and calling, you know, legislators, you know, to shame. But in San Francisco, they went a step further. They went into the Social Security Administration building and they sat in for 28 days. <laughs> All of these people with severe That's disabilities amazing. sitting in, a little unknown fact was that the Black Panther movement supported them by bringing them food. So if you want to talk about the intersection of civil rights and disability rights, it was the concept of human rights. We are people. Why treat us like we're not? So they eventually forced the hand of Joseph Califano, the secretary, and he endorsed the regulations and they came into effect. That began the whole long march towards the Americans with Disabilities Act. There were a number of local lawsuits that went into it that came up to try to get things done. Many of them focused on transportation and on education because without education or transportation, what are your chances for employment? What are your chances for living independently? So you have a couple of things that you have to get together. And also, and we still have a lot of work to do here, medical facilities. What about the um, Education for All Handicapped Children's Act? The Education for All Handicapped Children's Act, I, I still think of it as PL 94142. Of course. Was passed in 1975. That started to grow in thinking probably as a result of the ESA, Elementary Secondary Education mm -hmm. Act that was passed in 65, I think it was, under President Johnson, that said everybody has a right to a public education. Now, they were thinking of poor kids, they were thinking of racial segregation, and they passed that. But the advocates for people with disabilities saw an opening, and they took it. And there was the famous Park case in Pennsylvania that was brought that set in 1971 that said, hey, you've got to take these kids out of institutions and put them in public schools. And then you had the Mills versus D.C. Act case, which basically said the same thing. You can't deny this. You've got to do it. So then we came to 1975 and the Education for All Handicapped Children Act, which said every kid has the right to a free, appropriate public education. And they need to have the related services that will enable them 
to exercise it. They need to have proper evaluation and you must have parental participation. These are a given. There is no negotiation on it. That is what the law said. What happens in reality, we all know sometimes is a little sure. bit different. But once you have something in writing, then it is up to everybody else who is affected to see what is it we are going to do to make sure that we go back to the spirit of the law as well as the letter of the law. Because it is the spirit that moves it. And again, it was not the legislature. It was not a batch of people in Washington, D.C. It was, we did not have a federal department of education at the time. It was not the state education departments. It was not the local school districts. None of them said, we want to open our doors and invite all the children with handicaps in. Mm-mm. None of them wanted to do that. Unfortunately, it appears if we're not forced to do right, we don't. So it is incumbent upon all of us to take a look at that and especially those who are not treated right, you have to take care of it yourself because nobody else necessarily will think about it for you. You are the only one who knows what it is like to have that disability, to have that segregation, to have that way of being treated. You are the one. And if you're a family member, you know what it is like to struggle to see someone you love treated that way. So it goes back to the community to force the legislature. No matter how much they say we're public servants, you have right. to make them be. So that was the precursor to IDEA, and the law has evolved quite a bit over time. Oh, yes. It, it starts and it moves. In 1990, they changed the name from Education for All Handicapped Children Act to Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Now, that reflects the change in the concept of a disability model from a medical model to a more social model where it is a person who has a disability and it is society which creates the impediments for that person to flourish and be a typical member of society, contributing, getting, giving, all of the same types of things. So they changed the name. They added uh, orientation and mobility as a related service for the blind in that. They added assistive technology devices, and they added some more language. Oh, and a biggie was transition services right. because what they had found was so you go to school so then we can put you in an institution when you come out because there's nothing that you can do <laughs> all right so that you know basically that's what they were finding they were people were not getting into college the education they were getting may have been considered inferior because this is my own special thing and I, I apologize when it's special education, it will be different education. When it should be the same education with modifications or adaptations or accommodations so that all people, whether or not you have something that is designated as a disability, can profit from that education. So we still have problems with language. 
And as long as we have those problems with language, to me it reflects the problem in our thinking and our continuing need to evolve so that we can then say, hey, it's like I sometimes say to someone who will be arguing with me, your child needs bone marrow. Will you ask the IQ of the donor? Will you ask if they can see? Will you ask about their hearing or can they run a marathon? Or do you want to know, does that vital human component, the bone marrow, does that match? We have to get there. Because that is really what it comes down to. That's amazing. We could hear you talk all day, Peggy. You have so much to say, and it's so amazing. I actually want you to come back again. But I have a few more questions for you first. Um, what is the current state of the disability rights movement? In need. <laughs> In need. Um, there is a common human tendency to think once you have, once you get something, you don't have to do anything to protect it. Mm. And so, folks who started the movement, who were active in the movement, who propelled the movement, they knew what it was like to not have. They knew what it was like not to be able to get on a bus. They understood the inability to get information because they did not hear or did not see. They recognized that they were not allowed to live in the community because of their cognitive disability. They knew these things. Their families knew these things. And they said, no way. Now that you have what appears to be those rights to do it, and it is in law that you have those rights, they can be eroded. History is filled with all of the stories of how we lose our rights and the people who were proud and participant become beggars and needy. It can happen to any of us. The disability rights movement needs young people and the young people need to know their history. They need to know where they came from, who they are. Everybody, every family tells their young their story. We know about our grandparents. If they were immigrants, we have some idea of what they faced when they immigrated. If they were involved in Europe during the war, we have an understanding. They tell us what it was like if we are fortunate. Everybody tells something. You're a kid with a disability. Who knows your history? Who tells you? Universities don't require teachers to know it. They're trying to have it in social studies curricula. It is part and parcel of American history. It is not separate. It is American history, how we developed our way of dealing with a huge percentage of people who are our brothers and sisters, our fellow citizens, how we were able to use them in a negative way. But we have to teach and people have to know that it is them. There must be pride. They have a disability pride parade in New York. They started a couple years ago. Right. And you might say, why? Why not? Why not? We have it for everything else, why not have it? 
why not say, yeah, we have a lot of achievements. I bet you couldn't do it if you were faced with some of the challenges I had. Let's see. Let's see how it goes. So I think there has to be a major change in our schools, and it has to be included as part of their education. All parents should know it because this now involves them very intimately. All teachers should know it. There should be no professor of education who is not aware of it. So there are a whole lot of people and a whole lot of things that we have to move into. Fortunately, they are now having disability studies programs. And I know City University has a chapter, but it has to get embedded into the teachers and into the youth. The youth are critical. The rest of us will die first. <laughs> so give some specific advice to youth. What should they be doing and thinking? Think for yourself. That's the most important thing. When you are young and you have a disability, everyone will seek to protect you. They will seek to overwhelm you with their care and concern. You have to be very careful that it doesn't destroy your initiative, that it doesn't take away your pride in your achievements. It is extremely important that you learn how to make your own decisions and take the consequences. You must learn how to be a risk taker. You achieve nothing without taking a chance. You may buy a lottery ticket. Why do you buy a lottery <laughs> ticket? Oh, you may win. You have a better chance of doing something in your daily life by taking a risk than you do of winning the lottery. And so when you are told that may be too hard for you. Make that decision yourself. So what if it is? How many of us have tried things that were too hard for us? How many go out for a sports team and don't make it? Don't necessarily feel it's because of my disability unless it is because of your disability. It may be simply that that's just not a thing. That's for me. But it's your decision. And it's something that you have to try. You have the right to fail as much as you have the right to succeed. And you will not be able to succeed unless you make the mistakes and don't do it right a few times. So it's your life. And you're the only one who can live it. That's amazing advice. Now, for the people that will follow in your footsteps, working with our people professionally, what advice would you give them? Be humble. Oh. Know that you don't know very much. <laughs> there is a mistake that we make in thinking that we know. One of the things that struck me as a teacher was I was always trying to teach the kids to understand me. Why was I not trying to understand them? So we are sure our way is correct and want to mold into our way. The disability rights movement says our way might be wrong. The civil rights movement says our way might be wrong. So learn to listen and be very humble and to learn from those you think you know more than. I love hearing your insights. They're just 
They're so remarkable. They're so you, and they're so right on the money. Now, you've spoken a little bit about some of the heroes of the disability rights movement. It's wonderful to hear about them, and I know how strongly you feel that their achievements should be known and celebrated. Are there any other heroes that we can mention before we close? Well, I'll start with New York City. There's a woman, Denise McQueen. Now, Denise was one of the founders of Disability in Action. Back in the 1980s, now she was a firebrand. She met Judy Human and got turned on by when Judy was speaking. And she got very, very active. She also had had polio. She had had a terrible time trying to get to school and everything else. They had these experiences that enriched their lives as adults and in what they were doing. And she was one of the ones who in the 1980s, now going back, we had had a lawsuit in New York City that required that city buses be accessible. So they had bought buses that were accessible. Did they use them? No, they drivers always <laughs> say, we don't have keys, we can't use it, we can't do this, we can't do that. So that was very common. So Denise one day went to get on a bus, and they were saying this to her. She got out of the bus, this young woman, got out of her wheelchair, transferred to sit on the seat of the bus. She sat on the bus seat for about seven hours all day. They offered to get her a taxi. They offered every kind of inducement in the world. She wouldn't do it until they got another bus that had the lift that let her go. She remained active, a tremendous advocate for many years. And after the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act, guess what? She went to work with the enemy, the MTA, worked in paratransit, and tried very hard to bring together the elements, people on each side. Another hero of mine was uh, Justin Dart. Justin Dart was from Texas. Now, he could have been, he had a wealthy father. He had also had polio. He could have been anything, done anything. He became extremely active in the disability rights movement, traveled throughout the United States, pushing, protesting, doing these things. And when you look at a picture of the signing of the ADA with George Bush signing it, you'll see a guy in a cowboy hat, and that is Justin Dart. He died uh, maybe within the past 10 years, and there were all kinds of tributes to him. Um, I mentioned Jack Gorelick as a hero. I would also say there were a couple of people. Gunnar Dibwat was a huge advocate for the developmentally disabled going back into the 50s and the 60s and his writings and his speakings. And he, with a combination of people like Richard Hungerford, who there is a school in New York City called the Hungerford School. It's the Richmond Occupational Training Center. He and a guy named Krista Prospo were the first ones in the 40s who insisted on occupational training for students who were considered by law, the terminology, mentally retarded at the time, 
so that they could be employed and he proved that occupational education would work. He then was enticed away to Laconia Institution in New Hampshire because he was a big proponent, Rich Hungerford, of parental participation and parent involvement. He wrote beautifully, beautifully, on locusts. Somebody should look up his on locusts. And he went up to Laconia, where he took them at their word. They wanted parents. Well, he opened the institution up to parents. Oh, my goodness, he got fired. And so <laughs> these were people who had visions and were true to them. Wade Blank. I have to mention Wade Blank a little bit more. He had been a minister. Now, back in the 60s and early 70s, the ministers were very, very active in the civil rights movement. And so he was one of them. And they eventually came into the disability rights movement. And he became, he was a chaplain, he became, he worked in a nursing home. It wasn't, I'm not sure if it was Atlanta or Denver. And there were a group of young people, 19 of them, young people with disabilities in a nursing home with seniors. These young people, younger people, were in a nursing home because nobody had a place for them. So they wanted to live in the community. So he arranged it. And he had all the people who worked for him go and work in the community. He got fired. <laughs> a lot of your stories end that way. And I love hearing them. Peggy, thank you so much. I think everyone who hears this is going to enjoy it tremendously. And I hope you'll come back again because I know there's so much more to say. Thank you, Jean. I, learning this stuff is a lot of fun. And if you, <laughs> if you work in the field, just the other thing I forgot to mention, have fun. It's, if you don't enjoy what you're doing, you're not going to do it well. Thank you. Thank you thank very you, much. Jean.